This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The topic today, as we're continuing this series on um, aging bones, is on pelvic fractures, which I'll be talking about, and also spine fractures, which are some of the more complex injuries that we treat um, as orthopedic trauma surgeons. And Trig, with with his um, expertise in both spine and trauma surgery, is uniquely qualified to talk about that. Um, But I'm going to kick things off and start off talking about pelvic fractures. Um, so we'll start off, this is just kind of a quick overview. We'll, we'll go through a little bit of the anatomy of the pelvis. It's one of the more um, complex areas that we deal with um, in our specialty. Um, we'll talk a little bit about different types of injuries, just in sort of broad categories that we typically see um, and how that varies as we get older um, in terms of what types of injury patterns we see, um, as well as injury mechanisms we see. And then we'll talk a little bit just in broad strokes about kind of how we approach uh, treatment uh, of the diverse uh, types of injuries that can happen um, to the pelvis. So when we talk about the pelvis, what what do we mean specifically? Um, So the pelvis, um, in the most basic terms from a, from a biomechanics standpoint is what connects your spine to your hips and your legs. So it transmits a tremendous amount of force from your, uh, from your legs up through your hip joints and into the pelvis and up to your spine. And the front of the pelvis is made up of, on each side we call it the anominate bone. It has three parts, but they're really kind of fused together into one part. Um, but they're called the ilium, uh, the pubis, and the ischium. Those three make up this anominate bone, which is kind of each half of your pelvis is one anominate bone. And they meet in the back um, at an area called the sacrum. And the sacrum is actually, um, Trig will get into it to some degree, I think, is part of your, it's actually part of your spine. It's the lowest part of your spine. But we also consider it uh, part of your pelvis, and it forms this ring of stability that transmits load from the spine in the back up to your hips in the front. Um, it's joined in the front uh, by uh, a lot of ligaments, and I'll talk a little bit about that, because that's a really kind of critical part of the anatomy. So this anominate bone and the sacrum, they don't just, just by the, f- they're not like this perfect ball and socket joint that naturally stays together because of the way they're shaped. They stay together because there are big, strong, stout ligaments um, that hold the bones together. The joint in the back that connects the sacrum um, to the rest of the pelvis is called the sacroiliac joint. So you may have heard people talk about sacroiliac joint problems, but it's in the very back of your pelvis, uh, again, where the spine meets the pelvis. And it's covered by these extremely thick uh, ligaments that are like uh, ropes that hold the back of the pelvis together. Um, and this is really important when we start getting into pelvic injuries because these play an important role in providing stability and determining what a stable injury is from an unstable one. In the front of the pelvis, you have these two halves of the pelvis, the two halves of the ring coming around to the front, and they meet at an area called your pubic symphysis. And you can feel this kind of right in the front of your pelvis. That's the prominence in that area. And there's uh, a thick fibrocartilage uh, attachment right in that area um, that's um, very dense and strong um, as well. 
Um, this is the area that in, in pregnant women who are going to give birth, it actually loosens up a little bit and allows that pelvis to open up to allow um, uh, a delivery to occur. Uh, but it's a very important ligament. It's normally very, uh, very stout, very rigidly held together. Um, and so that's important as we think about what the different types of injuries are. So again, just to recap, the pubic symphysis is in the front. We have the sacroiliac ligaments, sacro for sacrum, iliac being, meaning the iliac bone was that first part of the innominate bone. So the sacroiliac ligaments, and they have, uh, there's a front part of those ligaments and then a back part of those ligaments that make up. Uh, so those are really the three major groups of ligaments that hold um, these pelvic bones together and play a role in pelvic injuries. You can't talk about pelvic fractures without talking about some of the major important structures that go by it. So we'll kind of go through each of these in a little bit of sequence. So um, the blood vessels are obviously um, uh, very important. The aorta comes down and it branches into your iliac vessels. The iliac vessels are the, are the, are the two big branches of your aorta that provide blood supply to your leg. They have, a, have one branch that goes inside the pelvis and supplies blood to all your organs that sit within your pelvis. And then... An, another branch that goes down into your legs and supplies blood supply down to your feet. That has two important implications. One is that when you break your pelvis, um, there can be an awful lot of bleeding. Um, and so there, these are, in orthopedics, we don't have a lot of, uh, we, we consider ourselves saving limbs a lot of the time, but these are injuries where sometimes it's very life-saving because there can be so much bleeding um, that there uh, can be life-threatening injuries in, in many cases. Um, it also means that if you disrupt one of these, then you could lose blood flow to some of these organs or to, um, to your limb. And so um, it, these are higher-risk injuries than um, uh, many of the other ones that we, we commonly talk about. The nerves are also uh, major nerves. So all, the, all these major nerves that em, uh, uh, emerge from the lower part of your spine pass through the pelvis. Um, the biggest ones, um, your sciatic nerve, which I think most people have heard of their sciatic. So your sciatic nerve comes and passes through the back of your pelvis and goes down the back of your leg. It supplies most of the muscles in, your, in your, the back of your thigh and lower leg. Um, and also the femoral nerve is the other major nerve that passes through. And the femoral nerve goes and supplies your um, quadriceps muscle. And so anytime you have an injury to the pelvis, there's this risk that you might have a nerve injury that could lead to... Um, potentially like a foot drop. It would be something that we would commonly seek because of the sciatic nerve being injured. Um, you can also, there are nerves that go to supply all the, uh, all the organs within the pelvis. So people can have problems with bowel or bladder function because of the nerves that um, supply those areas. So um, this is another major consideration uh, in talking about pelvic fractures. And lastly, what are, the, what are the sort of pelvic contents that we're talking about? What are the pelvic contents that we're worried about in a pelvic fracture? Um, well, all, almost all of your lower abdominal contents, your intestines and everything, are sitting kind of adjacent to your pelvis. The ones that are mainly within the, within the pelvic ring would be the bladder, uh, the uterus, and women in the lower part of the GI tract. So um, any of these can be injured, injured in association with a bad um, pelvic fracture. So... Um, this is always something that we're thinking about. This isn't just a broken bone. All these other structures uh, are also uh, at risk and can, can cause um, significant long-term problems for people. 
So just to summarize the anatomy part before we jump into the injury, so there's a really complex anatomy surrounding um, the pelvis. Um, the bony injuries can be associated with major ligament injuries and instabilities, uh, vascular injuries, nerve injuries, and uh, bowel and bladder injuries. Um, and not only is that complicated for the injury, it also complicates our surgical treatment because exposing the pelvis is not just a little skin incision. It usually involves uh, quite a complex exposure that has to take into account uh, all of these different anatomic structures. Um, and that has relevance as we talk about treatment a little bit later. So what are the injury patterns uh, that we typically would see uh, for the pelvis? So I'm going to put it into two kind of big, broad buckets that we, we would typically see. The first is a pelvic ring injury. So a pelvic ring injury, um, we always use the analogy of a, of a pretzel. It's literally, it, you can't really break a pretzel in one place, you know. It almost always breaks in two, and the pelvis is the same way. And that ring that goes from the pubic symphysis in the front all the way to the sacrum in the back can break, and if it breaks in two places, we consider that a, a pelvic ring injury. Um, and what's relevant about that is we've then disrupted the relationship, the stable relationship between your hip and your spine. That's the bad news. But the good news is the hip joint itself, there's not, a, there's not really a joint injury per se, or at least not a, a hip joint injury. Um, so arthritis and things like that are less of a worry um, for a pelvic ring injury. The other big category of injury, so pelvic ring injuries on the one hand, and the other one is an acetabular fracture. The acetabulum is a fancy term for your hip socket. So the hip joint is a ball and socket, um, and you can break the socket, and that's called an acetabular fracture. And these are just some pictures. On the right side, you see uh, what we would consider a pelvic ring injury. This is what we would call an open, open book uh, pelvis injury. It's one, we'll go through this in more detail, but where the um, ligaments in the very front of the pelvis disrupt and it get, opens up literally as it sounds um, like a book. Um, and these can be quite severe injuries, but the good news is that they don't involve the joint, and so they don't tend to have long-term consequences for any joints. In contrast to the injury on the bottom, where the, the ball of the ball and socket, the femoral head, has been driven up into the socket, and it's, it's kind of shattered on that left side. And that uh, is, a much more, is a complex injury to treat and can have really a lot of long-term consequences for the function of the hip joint. So we'll delve into a little bit more detail on pelvic ring injuries. So what are the different elements of the pelvic ring? So I talked about the fact that it's like a um, pretzel. It typically breaks in two places. That break can take on sort of one of two broad flavors. It can either be a ligament injury or it can be a fracture, a bony injury of some kind. And it can occur, usually occurs in the front and in the back. So whenever we see an injury in the front on an x-ray, we immediately start looking uh, for where the injury in the back might be. Um, the front injuries most commonly would be the pubic symphysis injury, like I talked about in that open book injury, or uh, they could be a fracture of the rami, which is one of the, one of the main bones at the front of the pelvis. Um, that's what's shown... Let me see if I have a pointer here. Um, can you see that? So this would be, in this, this drawing, this would be the uh, ramus fracture, and then this is the, uh, a fracture in the back of the iliac bone. But again, it's, it's fracture uh, occurs in both the front and the back of the pelvis. 
in the back of the pelvis, it's usually, uh, it's very commonly a uh, ligament injury of the SI joint, the sacroiliac joint, uh, or it can be a fracture, again, of the sacrum or the, or the iliac bone. Um, this picture on the bottom is showing a tear of those ligaments, of the sacroiliac ligaments in the back, and then a tear of the pubic symphysis in the front. So again, this would be another example of that open book um, type of injury. So how do these happen? What, what, what does it take to break your pelvis? And in general, we think of them as a very high energy injury. This isn't something that um, typically is happening uh, in, uh, in young people unless there is a really, really large amount of force. And most commonly would be a car crash. Uh, it could be a motorcycle crash, a fall from height, or getting hit by a car. It takes some kind of a whole lot of energy, generally speaking, um, to break the pelvis. And how it breaks in terms of whether you get a fracture or a ligament disruption and exactly where it breaks actually depends a lot on where the force comes from. And uh, we actually classify them based on this. But typically, if the force comes to the pelvis directly from the front, like what might happen in a motorcycle crash or a car crash, that's when we would see that open book uh, type pelvic injury where you have the symphys uh, pubic symphysis disruption in the front and the ligament injuries in the back. And the pelvis just opens up and rotates outward. If the force comes from the side, like um, a car uh, hitting another car, um, uh, uh, getting T-boned in a car from the side, uh, or a high fall where somebody lands on their side, then we see a different pattern of injury. More commonly, instead of the ligament injuries and open, the open book injury, we get what's called a lateral compression injury where the uh, pelvis turns inward and you get breaks in the front uh, and in the back. And we hold a whole classification system around this, and I'm not going to belabor this. I think it's kind of beyond the scope of this talk, but this is how we kind of classify. Within each category of uh, direction of force, we think about there's kind of a spectrum of injury we see depending on how much force got transmitted to the pelvis. And this dictates at the lowest end of the spectrum are things that often aren't are, uh, aren't totally unstable and don't even need surgery, whereas the ones at the, at the higher energy end of the spectrum uh, are more often, more likely to be unstable uh, and more commonly uh, would require surgery. But we um, divide them into the lateral compression, which is the force from the side, the anterior-posterior compression, which is a force from the front, and then vertical shear, which is um, literally like um, um, uh, in, in plane with your body. Usually this would be something like a fall from a really large height, 30 or 40 feet, and landing um, and directly, and it shifts the pelvis vertically instead of in either of those other two directions. But it's, it's the least common of the three. So those are kind of the high-energy uh, pelvic fractures that we talk about. But what happens um, as we get older? Um, well, basically, the, these same injuries can happen, but you don't need nearly as much force as we, you would need as a, 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 at a younger age. So we can start to see pelvic fractures even from falls from a stepladder or falls even from standing as, uh, as bone quality starts to get really, really poor. So in, in severe osteoporosis, just a simple fall from standing can lead to, uh, lead to a pelvic fracture because the bone quality is so poor. Usually the types of injuries that we see are that lateral compression variant because it's usually a, you know, a fall from standing and landing on the side of the hip. And even though there's lower kinetic energy, that lower kinetic energy combined with poor bone quality can still lead to fairly severe fractures in some cases. 
Luckily, the majority fall on the less severe end of the spectrum, and this uh, when it's just from a from a fall. Um, but uh, we still see the same spectrum of injury, even in uh, older patients uh, who have it from a lower uh, lower energy mechanism. Um, this is just a graph uh, from a study. This was actually in Europe, but the. Um, bottom line is it just shows that um, there's, we would consider it's a bimodal distribution. So pelvic fractures happen in you know, young, crazy 20-year-old guys who are crashing their motorcycles, but then it peaks again uh, later in life as bone quality um, becomes poor, and this just shows that. Um, and more common in women and men just because osteoporosis is a little bit more common. Um, in the most extreme case, uh, when bone quality is so, so poor, you can actually get what we call insufficiency fractures. They're not even associated with a fall. It's literally the bone gets so poor that you just spontaneously start to develop like a stress fracture, essentially, um, that most typically occurs in the sacrum, in that lowest part of the spine at the back of the pelvis. Um, and these can be a cause of really severe um, lower back pain. And sometimes it's easy to miss, actually, uh, because back pain is so common um, that it's easy to chalk it up to just run-of-the-mill back pain. But it can actually be this uh, more, more severe problem. Um, again, because it's a bone uh, quality problem, it does uh, happen more commonly with increasing age. The good news is that it usually gets better with conservative treatment. It's usually a period of rest, just pain control, physical therapy, and early immobilization as tends to be the mainstay of treatment. We rarely have to do surgery for this, um, but it is important to identify uh, early because it, it is different than your typical uh, lower back pain. So circling back to um, pelvic ring injuries and, and just shifting gears and talking a little bit more about treatment, um, well, the good news is that uh, I, the majority of pelvic ring injuries, and especially those that occur um, with older age, can be treated without surgery. And usually it would be something like uh, even we even allow people to weight bear right away, but probably with some kind of assistive device, um, like a walker initially, and then as the pain settles down, can return and wean back to a cane or nothing. Um, but there are some some subset where if the front of the ring and the back of the ring, and remember the pretzel analogy, if, this, if there's just enough energy and the bone quality is bad enough, then you can get an unstable injury where both the front and the back are broken, then occasionally we still would need to do surgery uh, in those scenarios. But luckily, um, it's a little bit less common. Now, acetabular fractures, remember this is the other broad bucket of pelvic injury that we see. These are the ones that um, are injury of the actual hip socket. Um, these more, more often than not do require surgery if the pieces are not quite lined up. And it, it really um, doesn't take much. Um, and studies have shown that even, even two millimeters, which is but you can just barely begin to see on an x-ray, but even two millimeters of the hip socket not being perfectly round uh, can lead to uh, a higher risk of arthritis um, down the road. And so we really have a lot, uh, our tolerances for the bones being uh, uh, the slightly out of place is a lot lower for an acetabular fracture than it would be for the um, pelvic ring injury because of the fact that it's involving the joint. Um, but the problem is the exposures to get to the pelvis are, uh, to the acetabulum to fix it, are very big. It requires these big, uh, open, 
exposures uh, to get all that anatomy we talked about at the beginning. We have to get that out of the way. And so this is just a picture of one of the common exposures that we would do to fix one of these fractures. It's an incision that goes up from way up on the iliac crest here all the way down to the pubic symphysis. It's a huge incision um, and a lot of exposure to get access to, to fix these. So that's a big distinguishing feature between sort of the acetabular fractures um, versus the pelvic ring injuries. So um, pelvic ring injuries, just in review, um, the bony injuries are a little bit more uh, straightforward to fix. Uh, first of all, they don't often don't even need to be fixed, um, but when they do, we can often do it with small incisions um, and more limited exposure. Um, and as long as the bone heals, um, the bone itself tends not to cause uh, long-term problems uh, for people, unlike uh, the acetabulum where you can develop arthritis down the road. But there's bad news with the pelvic ring injuries, and especially with the higher energy ones. Uh, they tend to be associated more commonly with other injuries. There can be head injuries, abdominal injuries. There's a much higher risk of significant bleeding because of all the blood vessels that are running right by the pelvis, like we talked about. Um, and a high risk of injury to all these other strutters. Bladder injuries and, and things like that are actually quite common. Uh, also, the major nerves can cause foot drop or bowel and bladder problems. So there's a lot of, the bony injury itself for pelvic ring is less, uh, often less worrisome than the uh, associated injuries. In contrast, for acetabular fractures, um, and here's an example again, uh, they have, the fracture itself tends not to bleed so much. There are rarely life-threatening amount of bleeding that occurs from an acetabular fracture. Um, there's much lower risk of damage to the surrounding structures. So it tends to be most of the energy of whatever fall led to this tends to go right into that hip socket and just create lots of pieces around the hip socket, but it doesn't tend to damage uh, things around that area. So that's the good news. But the bad news is that they are very complex to treat. Um, they require these large uh, incisions and surgical exposures in many cases, um, and there's a much higher risk of uh, arthritis uh, in the long term due to damage to the joint. So uh, just a couple of examples to run through to talk a little bit about, uh, just to show you what the treatments kind of look like. Um, this is a 61-year-old man who was riding his motorcycle, um, and he crashed uh, and sustained this injury. And what we see here is um, in the front, there's a big gap in here between the two bones. That's the injury of the um, pubic symphysis, the ligament that attaches these two bones in the front. In the back, on the left side, there's a big, it's maybe hard for you to appreciate, but there's a big gap between the iliac bone over here and the sacral bone here. That indicates that there's been a tear of the ligament, those thick ligaments that hold the um, sacroiliac joint together normally. And there's also actually is a fracture over here that's very close to the acetabulum, though this one wasn't uh, totally in the joint, even though it's quite close to it. And so the way we treat this one, so this patient was, was very sick when they came in, was a lot of bleeding, they needed a lot of blood transfusions, um, had to go to the ICU, need a lot of close monitoring um, and uh, to be resuscitated. And once uh, resuscitated, um, went to the operating room and um, was able to fix the front just with a fairly small incision. That's a plate and screws in the front there that's holding that pubic symphysis back together where it belongs. This is a, a long screw placed uh, along that fracture through an incision, a tiny incision of about a centimeter. 
Um, and then these screws in the back hold the sacrum. They were actually both sides were injured, as it turned out. Um, and so there's screws in the back that are holding the, those sacroiliac joints back together again. And that's all done through just little small incisions without wide exposures, using an intraoperative fluoroscopy, an intraoperative x-ray machine, to guide and make sure that we have the pieces lined up again and make sure that we've safely placed the screws and not hit any of those important blood vessels or nerve structures or things like that. That's obviously very important. So this, that's kind of the, the fun part on pelvic ring injuries is we are able to do things through um, relatively small exposures. Um, this is just a contrast. This is a 71-year-old man um, hanging Christmas lights, not an uncommon story, unfortunately, and fell from a ladder about five or six feet um, and has this um, acetabular fracture. Um, so this is on the, on the right side right here, and it maybe shows better on this other images that's rotated slightly. You can see that the, the, the ball of the ball and socket, the femoral head, has pushed up into that hip socket and, and split the pieces apart. Um, and that's led to the, you know, the socket's not a nice round socket anymore. It's, it's, into, it's, it's broken into, into some pieces. And so this, in this case, uh, had to do a much bigger exposure. So it's that same, it's called, we call it the ilioinguinal, but it's this big, long incision that wraps almost halfway, you know, a quarter of the way around your body. Big, wide exposure. We have to kind of expose those big blood vessels that go to the leg and make sure everything's safe and protected. Um, and then we use these plates and screws to put it back together. And so we are able to, you know, very accurately reconstruct the hip socket. Um, but it does require a lot more exposure, and the surgery is probably more, more risky, risky uh, in many ways than the fracture itself, which is, is a big contrast to the um, pelvic surgery. So um, what's on the horizon? Things that are kind of new in the field of pelvic surgery, I think. One that's uh, really exciting is um, the use of intraoperative CT scans. Um, so I mentioned that uh, we use intraoperative x-rays a lot, but that's a two-dimensional image. Now we're, we have these, uh, it's called the O-arm. It's, it's literally like a big O, so we can do a three-dimensional scan of someone's pelvis during surgery. That allows us to um, check and make sure that uh, uh, things are back in place where they belong, check and make sure the hardware is where we think it's supposed to be. And there's even thing, a thing called navigation where we, you can actually register your instruments to a machine using that three-dimensional CT scan, and it can help guide you uh, with a computer and make sure that you're uh, placing everything in, uh, very precisely in bone uh, where you'd like to put it. And so I think that this is something uh, in the future that's going to allow us to increasingly do less and less of these big exposures and do more and more through um, smaller incisions. The other one, and, and maybe it's crossed someone's mind, is so when we're talking about the acetabular fractures, well, why not just do a hip replacement? Um, it sounds uh, very simple. And if when we, uh, another important distinction that hopefully has been clear is that when we talk about hip fractures, this isn't the hip fracture that we're talking about. When people talk about uh, hip fractures in general, it's talking about uh, a break on the femur side of the ball and socket, on the ball side of the ball and socket. So that's, those are at least 100 plus times more common than these acetabular fractures. But uh, these socket fractures are much more complex because when the ball, when it breaks right below the ball, which is very comp the, your, your typical hip fracture, it's very easy to just do a replacement. Um, the hip replacement essentially 
even for arthritis, they just take the ball out anyway. So it's almost like the fracture does the work for you. So it's very easy to use uh, total hip replacement for treatment for that. For acetabular fractures, though, unfortunately, it's much more difficult because the way the hip replacements work, the socket replacement has to sit into the bone and be able to get fixed to the bone very well. There's nothing that you really, not much that you cut out. It's almost like a resurfacing. And so if the socket is broken, then the, the pieces won't, won't have anything to hold on to. And so there is, uh, but there is a push now towards trying to combine, since there's such a high risk of arthritis with these, some of these fractures, to actually fix the bone and replace at the same time. Um, and we're trying to combine this with some of these more percutaneous, limited small incision approaches to fix the bone and then do the hip replacement. And that can really be a way of kind of dealing with all the problems at once. But um, these are kind of things that are uh, still, uh, still evolving, but uh, things we're thinking about for the future. So in conclusion, um, it's a really complex anatomy that surrounds the pelvis, which leads to complicated multi-system injuries and complicated um, surgeries to try and reconstruct. Um, they uh, do increase with age, uh, and that relates to uh, osteoporosis and poor bone quality. Um, there's a big spectrum of injury, and luckily the majority, especially among uh, uh, older patients, the majority uh, can be treated non-operatively. But there are a subset that are unstable and, and may require surgery. And, of course, we talked about the acetabular fractures. That's a whole different category. That's a break of the socket of the hip joint. They're more complex and have a higher risk of arthritis. That's all I have. Thank you. So I'm not just going to talk about fractures. I'm going to talk about this is a potpourri of a lot of different things related to the spine. I trained at Vanderbilt and went, did my orthopedics at the University of Michigan. I did my trauma fellowship here and my uh, spine fellowship down in Los Angeles. Um, I've done one thing perfectly in the world. <laughs> and when I was in the first grade, I achieved perfect attendance. And I, at the end of that year, I said, you know what? I'm going to try to keep this record up as long as I can. And I've never missed a single day of school or work in my entire life. I'll be 65 in January, so I'm really lucky, very lucky. And I just came across a book that, was, that, I, that I found very interesting, how, how Do You Live a Long Life? Well, you know, people theorize, and there's a Stanford uh, long, Longevity Project, but really what the, the punchline here is that if you work really hard, and you engage in a pursuit of a goal, you'll live longer than if you just dilly-dally around and don't do anything and you're happy-go-lucky. So maybe I'll live a really long time, but this, this book is really good, so I would advise people to maybe uh, get it and have a read. So I've got multiple passions that I'm really uh, excited about, and that's I, I work seven days a week. One of my passions is my ranch out in the Central Valley, and uh, we have a bunch of horses out there. It's a commercial operation, and I'm a pretty good stall cleaner, which is uh, very hard work, um, but I'm used to it because I grew up on a farm in Tennessee. I'm also one of the team doctors for the Pro Rodeo Cowboy Association and the professional bull riders, and they get injured uh, every eight seconds <laughs> or less. Um, 
it's an extreme sport. It's very popular. It's a popular uh, spectator sport. There's usually thirty or forty thousand people in the audience. But the two, the three, the three rough stock events are bull riding, bareback, and saddle bronc. And I'll I'll show you what we did in a study with these the bareback riders, which is the bottom right. They're subjected to extreme whiplash forces that you won't really even believe. Um, there are three things. This is um, <clears throat> probably going to get me a little choked up. What I wanted to do, um, you know, people, you often hear people say they want to make a difference in the world. And so I gave a lot of thought to that. How could I make a difference in the world? And, um, you know, day to day we do orthopedics and you affect people's lives on a day to day basis. But what happens when I'm not here? And so I wanted to create a, a fellowship, uh, a graduate medical education fellowship, and I named it after my daughters. And Dave can um, maybe explain it a little better, but I created this international research fellowship with the purpose of training our future young orthopedic surgeons so they, they could go out and uh, perform research projects, teach other orthopedic surgeons in these under-resourced countries and uh, make a difference in the world. And this, this is a sustaining thing that will be here long, hopefully long after I'm not here. And I've pledged $250,000 of my own money, and I'm gradually chipping away at it. And I've got some brochures here I'm going to pass out if anybody wants to put a dollar in there. Um, but this is something that I'm very passionate about. And uh, Dave, I think, is headed to Tanzania tomorrow? Friday. Friday. We have three of our, the orthopedic, the orthopedic Trauma Institute, which is part of UCSF, uh, has multiple outreach sites. So Dave and Sam Morshed and Amir Matitiahu are on a plane to Tanzania for 10 days to do courses and, and, and do some really good stuff. I'm very proud of those guys for doing that. And we have a fellow every year. Uh, we've done this since 2012, and the fellows that have gone through this program have, have achieved a lot, and I'm, I'm really proud of them, too. And uh, hopefully this will continue f forever. Um, so what we're going to talk about is a bunch of uh, different things related to the spine, and we'll go through a little bit of anatomy, a little bit of biomechanics, what is an injury, whiplash, spinal cord injury, disc herniation, because that's you know a common problem as well as some fractures. So in the spine world, there's, there are three things that you have to do. You have to take a history, you have to perform an examination, and you have to do imaging studies. You can't make a diagnosis without all three of those. So people will come up and say, hey, Dr. McClellan, can you look at my MRI and tell me what you think? Well, I need to know what the history is, and I need to know what the examination shows. You can't really give them any information based on just an imaging study. The physical exam is very important because I know the wiring diagram. There are certain nerves that go to certain distributions, whether it's a sensory nerve or a motor nerve, and you can examine those specific nerve roots to determine if there's an injury to that nerve. So the anatomy of the spine is repetitive. There's vertebral body, disc, uh, small facet joints. If you look at a cross-section of the uh, spinal cord at the, or the spine at the cervical level, the disc is made up of a nucleus, which is like a jelly. 
the outer covering uh, or the fibrous ring, the vertebral body, and then those holes on either side is where the artery is that goes to the brain. Then the nerve root comes out um, in that little foramen or hole. The spinal cord is in the middle there, and then there's an arch or a roof over the top of the uh, back of the spinal cord to, pr to protect it. The spinal cord ends at about T12, L1, so there's no spinal cord below uh, L1. So the lumbar spine, your lower spine, again, is a disc, vertebral body, uh, disc, vertebral body repetitively. And then the, the nerve roots come out again as paired structures at, at certain levels and go into, into a particular distribution into your, uh, into your lower extremities. Um, this just shows the uh, ligaments in the front and the ligaments in the back of the spine that hold the, the vertebral bodies together. And they're very strong ligaments. It takes an incredible force to tear them. And then the spinal cord is protected in the bony, the ligamentous bony uh, structure of the uh, spinal column. So what is, what is an injury? An injury, you need, we need to know what a clear definition of an injury. Uh, and it's sort of, there's... There are multiple theories on what an injury is. Uh, like most uh, diseases, injury um, is defined by, or it's defined by the causative event and what is the resulting pathology. The simple orthopedic definition is a mechanical disrupt, disruption of a biological tissue resulting in pain. Well, what's pain? The Marines say that pain is weakness leaving the body. Um, and that's what the cowboys say. They frequently, I tell the bull riders, you know, if you didn't have any pain, you'd be lonesome. So that's the simple orthopedic definition, but really there's a very complex pain pathway. Uh, the epidermis has nociceptive uh, uh, re uh, receptors in the skin that are activated by some tissue injury. The signal travels through the peripheral nerve. It gets through, ne through neurotransmitters. It goes to the thalamus. And then in the thalamus, it goes to the somatosensory cortex, the frontal cortex, and the limbic system. And so pain can be perceived, uh, you know, there, there's Chronic pain is a very complex thing. There's an emotional piece. There's a sensory piece. There's a thinking piece. Uh, so that's why chronic pain is a, a difficult problem. Um, there are multiple theories of injury. Um, these are just a few of them. And just to talk about the top one, the multivariate uh, interaction theory, there's a, there's, a, there's a bunch of stuff that can happen, uh, both genetically, morphologically, um, psychosocially, um, as well as biomechanically that can result in, you know, injury causation. So injury is a serious public uh, health issue. Uh, one person dies of an injury every three minutes. There's more than two and a half million people that are hospitalized with injuries. 31.6 million people are treated in the emergency room, and more than $465 billion is spent in annually in uh, medical costs and lost productivity. So what about of whiplash. Whiplash, everybody is, knows what rip whiplash is. Well, is it, is it fake or real? And it's not uncommon for patients that are involved in a rear-ender to get an MRI very quickly after the, after the accident, and it almost always shows something, and then there's the issue, what was that caused by the accident? Well, there's a bunch of studies that have been done that show 
that probably those changes are not related to the accident. This is a study that was done by a radiologist. It was published. It was a prospective study. And what they did, they took 100 consecutive patients, and they had an MRI within 48 hours after the accident, and then they matched that to 100 uh, match controls. They had four people that had no idea what whether it was a uh, whiplash person or an age match control, and there was really limited to no evidence that the the findings on the MRI were related to the uh, whiplash. There was the, basically the the two MRIs were very similar. Uh, again, this was a um, study that looked at. Um, uh, long-lasting symptoms following a whiplash. It was a prospective trial with a, a one-year follow-up, and what they found was that pre-existing degenerative changes was not associated with a prognosis. MRI rarely gave you an answer to a diagnosis. Getting early MRI scans didn't predict the prognosis. So, bottom line, his bottom line with this study and with multiple others is that you know the MRI alone is not really your answer for. Uh, you know, diagnosing what might have happened with a whiplash. This was a study that actually won a, an award. It was done about 20 years ago. They took 21 volunteers, subjected them to a 14.2-kilometer rear-end accident, which is equivalent to 3.6 Gs. They examined them and did MRIs before and after this accident, and there weren't any symptoms or changes on the MRI. Now, obviously, the volunteers knew that something was coming, um, and that's 3.6 Gs is not very much. You know, that's less than 10, basically 10 miles an hour. So what, what I wanted to do is say, what would happen if I exposed a human to 10 times that force? And you're going to say, well, who's going to volunteer to 36 Gs and, and be happy about that? Well, I got the rodeo guys. Uh, we, we took the bareback riders, and I don't know if you've ever seen a bareback rider, but they're laid out like this, and the horses buck so hard that they're whiplashed uh, like crazy. Um, this was an IRB-approved study. We had volunteers. It was also a concussion study. That's me with some of the cowboys. You know, they're young and tough, just like me. Um, we actually did a, a lot of stuff before. We examined them. We did, had them fill out surveys. We did MRIs right before and right after. And the, the really cool thing is we uh, did G-force calculations um, with... Uh, this accelerometer, so we put accelerometers in their mouth so we could measure the linear and the rotational g-forces while they got bucked, okay? This is one of the riders before he, before he actually got on a bucking horse. You can see he has a very large herniation at C6-7. He was totally asymptomatic. Most surgeons, most people would say, you better not get on this horse if you've got that. But he said, I'm, you know, I've never had a problem with my neck. He had a, here's his G-force data. He, he was exposed to a peak of 35 Gs, okay? Here's his MRI right afterwards or the next morning. Really no difference. Here are the two MRIs side by side. This was read by radiologists. No difference in the two MRIs despite a large herniation pre- and post-ride. So we had 21 guys that, um, were, that we did this with. The mean acceleration was about 24 Gs. One, one of the riders peaked at 62.8 Gs. Really, there was no real difference uh, 
the, the post-ride neck scores were a little bit higher, but there was no arm pain, no radiculopathy, no real change other than a little bit of bulging in the disc before and after. So really th this study was uh, significantly more uh, severe as far as the G-forces in that other study. So how do you treat a how do you treat a, a whiplash? Well, this was in 20 years ago. Really, it's minimal intervention, reassurance, encouragement, simple exercises. Uh, you know, don't get an MRI every two or three weeks because it's not going to make any difference. Um, you've heard the phrase "no pain, no gain." Well, uh, if you go back to work early and you you, you will tend to maintain your treatment um, gains if you're rehabbed on a following a, an injury to the neck. So. This was a study with one-year follow-up. 73 had returned to work. 37 were disabled. Uh, the participants who returned to work were more likely to maintain their treatment gains than those who remained work disabled. So when patients say, well, you know, I can't go back to work, I just say, well, if you go back to work, you'll, you'll maintain what treatment goals uh, you've uh, realized if you, you know, if, if you get back to work, the sooner the better. Um, just a, a couple comments about impairment and disability. This comes up frequently with back injuries. Um, impairment is actually a loss of physiologic or uh, functional or psychological function due to injury. Disability is loss of limitation of work or opportunity to take part in society. A judge makes a disability determination. A doctor makes an impairment uh, recommendation. Uh, the reason this is important because this is very common in the spine world. Patients think they're disabled uh, when in fact they have very little impairment. Uh, lower back pain, again, is the top cause for years loss uh, due to disability. Uh, th there are multiple studies in, um, in, in many different countries that show that the uh, global burden of uh, back-related uh, issues um, is, is humongous. Uh, Social Security uh, receives more disability applications for back problems than any other physical illness or injury. So let's talk a little bit about biomechanics. Um, so how do you evaluate uh, injuries? Um, we can do mathematical mo modeling. We can do cadaver studies, human volunteers. You've seen those studies. You can put you know the car dummies in there. If you look at the spine, it breaks down into several segments. One is uh, the thoracic spine the, uh, from T1 to T12, and that's fairly rigid. It's supported by the rib cage. Um, there's a curve that is called a kyphosis, sort of a hunchback, um, and usually flexion uh, injuries predominate uh, in the thoracic spine. Uh, at the junction between thoracic and lumbar, there's a transition between very stiff to very mobile. Um, so uh, most injuries occur at the junction between the thoracic and lumbar spine. And then there's the lower spine from L3 to the sacrum. Um, and the lower spine is very mobile and usually axial loading injuries um, um, predominate there. Uh, again, this is just a biomechanical testing uh, um, machine that we can uh, create constructs in cadavers and test the, the loading and the structural rigidity of our constructs. Um, this is an interesting study, and I don't know how many golfers there are out there, but we're going to talk about some uh, what, what happens to your back when you play golf, and we'll talk about what Tiger Woods had. But if you, uh, if you lift a load of 20 kilograms bent um, forward slightly, 
there's a four and a half increase in disc pressure in your back. Just lifting a 20 uh, kilogram uh, weight bent forward a little bit, four and a half fold increase in disc pressure. Um, so the pressure actually increased after you'd been after that person was the, the monitors were placed in the disc. That pressure actually increased after they'd been lying down for seven hours, and that was presumably due to rehydration of the disc um, after they went to bed. So this is a dummy model. We, you know, the cars do all this testing with uh, safety restraints and headrests and stuff. All the new cars after 2012 required a, a head restraint or 2010, whatever it was. So there's fewer whiplashes. So car crashes are, are, are not uncommon, and this is some of the uh, numbers that it takes to, um, to create an injury, a vertebral compression fracture can occur, um, or a fracture dislocation can occur with a 20 to 40 G load. Uh, you can have a pelvic fracture with a 100 to 200 G load, and your body can fragment with 350 Gs. Um, now, these are, this is a little bit different than the, than the rodeo study that we uh, performed, but this just gives you an idea of, of what G forces can happen. Uh, what, what can occur with certain levels of G-forces. So why, why is back pain so common in, in certain athletes? Um, golfers are the uh, most notorious uh, uh, victims of, uh, of back injuries, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, but most of the tour professionals will have a, a neck or a back injury. Um, Tiger Woods was crippled with his L5-S1 disc because he... He, he, in fact, he couldn't play anymore. He had multiple surgeries until he had a, a lumbar interbody fusion. And the reason the back is subjected to so much load is there's, you're bending forward, there's torsion on the disc, and this repetitive loading, that's one of the theories of injury, this repetitive loading uh, produces injury to the disc. This was a study that uh, looked at the compressive shear and lateral bending and rotational loads at L3, L4 with one golf swing. So with one golf swing, there's eight times body weight through the L3, L4 disc. So imagine a guy like Tiger Woods who swings a golf club hundreds and hundreds of times a day and experiencing eight times his body weight through the disc. So you, you, you can understand why that would produce an injury. Um, so this goes to the cumulative load theory. So it's a repetitive cumulative load to the to the lower disc. It results in this uh, injury to that to to that disc that causes the pain. Um, there's probably a good reason that women live longer than men, and um, you know you'll frequently hear the term fracture or broken. It's really the same thing, and a fall from a height like this will almost guaranteed uh, result in a spinal fracture um, and potentially a spinal cord injury. So spinal cord injuries are, are pretty significant. Most are from vehicular accidents and falls. Uh, we see a few from gunshot wounds, uh, some from sports. I've seen bull riders with broken necks and broken backs. Uh, there, as of 2015, there were about 12,500 new spinal cord injuries each year. Um, and between 240 to 337 people are currently living with a spinal cord injury in the United States. 
So just a couple of examples of fracture types. This is a burst fracture, which means the vertebral body just uh, explodes into many pieces. And we sort of classify burst fractures as to whether they're stable or unstable. The ones that are stable can be treated in a brace called a TLSO um, because they're not going to tend to fall apart or cause neurologic damage. Um, this is a, an example of a CT scan um, of somebody with an, an L1 burst fracture. He was neurologically intact. In other words, the, the nerves were working totally normally. So we felt like he could be treated in a TLSO. Um, unfortunately, in follow-up, he started to kyphose or collapse. The bone collapsed more, and he developed a, a deformity there. So we ended up putting in screws and rods to uh, stabilize his spine so that it wouldn't collapse anymore. Um, so this is another type of fracture called a flexion distraction injury. Uh, where it tears ligaments and bones, and the bone, it goes all the way through the spinal canal. Um, many of these result in neurologic deficits. Um, in this particular patient right here, this was a, a young girl who uh, was in a car accident, and it looks really bad on your, the x-rays on the left, but amazingly she was neurologically intact, and uh, we, we simply fix that with, a, with two screws at each at the level above and two screws at the level below with some rods. Um, this is an unfortunate young girl who was sitting in the seat with her uh, boyfriend uh, in the front seat and uh, the car flipped and she broke her back. This is at L3, I guess, uh, which is below the level of the spinal cord, but she had a complete spinal cord injury because at the time of impact when she was thrown out of the car, this is a static image, so there was probably way more displacement of the bone, and it just shredded all the nerves from the lower spinal cord. So, you know, we still fixed it so that she could rehab and, and, and get through that, that as well as possible with, with as little uh, pain as possible, but she ended up uh, with a complete spinal cord injury. This is a fracture dislocation. Again, there's almost all of these result in neurologic deficit if they're at the spinal cord level. Um, almost all require surgery. Um, and this is a lady that actually we're getting ready to operate on here at UCSF. This is a lady I treated 20 years ago, um, and she was in a, the back of a pickup truck, fell asleep, or was in the back of the pickup truck and the driver fell asleep. The truck rolled multiple times and she has a fracture dislocation. You can see the red lines and the yellow uh, arrows show that the, the vertebral column is obviously not very well lined up and uh, tore her spinal cord. Um, we still fixed her, but she actually has developed uh, a problem below the, the rods and the hooks um, with severe degeneration, so we're going to revise that. And this was done 20 years ago. Here's a, here's a person with an L3 burst fracture. This is the MRI showing uh, the spinal cord getting sort of pinched, or the nerves getting pinched, not the spinal cord because there's no spinal cord. And then the bone fragments in the canal on the, on the far, uh, your far right. Uh, and this was fixed where we took the, the fractured vertebral body completely out. We put an expandable cage in and then put screws and rods in the back to stabilize that. This is uh, the um, vertebral compression fractures, which are common in elderly. 
They can result from almost no uh, injury, just a cough or a simple slip and fall, um, or they can even occur spontaneously. Um, They are incredibly common. We see about 700,000 of these per year. A lot of them are not even diagnosed because the, the, the person has back pain, but they don't even go to the hospital, and they just assume that they're old and they've got back pain. Um, but there are quite a few hospitalizations related to compression fractures every year. There are a lot of causes or risk factors to uh, vertebral compression fractures, including age, uh, uh, osteoporosis, steroid use, smoking, and some of these other things, malnutrition, alcohol uh, use, and a sedentary lifestyle are all risk factors. Um, and in fact, if you look at um, uh, vertebral compression fractures, if you have more than they can frequently occur in, in, in greater than one or two, so if you have three or more, that's equivalent to uh, having a stroke or cancer as far as, as, far as quality of life. Um, this was a study of 334 people that were 65 that had more than three uh, VCFs, and their quality of life was, was not good. Um, so if you look at risk uh, following a recent fracture, 20% will experience another fracture within the first year. So if you get one, you have a 20% chance of getting another one within the first year. Um, we're going to move into... Uh, the final topic here of, of pinched nerves. Um, this was a large study uh, out of the Mayo Clinic that looked at uh, cervical radiculopathy or a pinched nerve in the neck causing arm pain. Uh, they looked at 561 patients. And the interesting thing is that most of these patients, 14.8%, um, could only, only 14% could recall any history of exertion or, or trauma. So the vast majority of, uh, of patients with a cervical radiculopathy or pinched nerve in the neck causing arm pain, the vast majority have no history of trauma or, or any uh, history of exertion. They're just, they occur spontaneously. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.